Modi. Narration by A.M.A. Kelly. Characterization creations by Jared McLean and A.M.A. Kelly. Once upon a time, there was a youth called Modi, who was very big and strong, but the clumsiest creature you can imagine. So clumsy was he that he was always putting his great feet into the bowls of sweet milk or curd which his mother set out on the floor to cool, always smashing, upsetting, breaking, until at last his father said to him, Here, Modi, these are fifty silver pieces which are savings of years. Take them and go make yourself a living or a fortune or a billion, whatever you can manage to rustle up. Do it. Then Modi started off one early spring morning with his thick staff over his shoulder, singing gaily to himself as he walked along. Doop, 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 looking at my back door. In one way and another, he got along very well, until a hot evening when he came to a certain city where he entered the traveler's seray, or inn, to pass the night. Now, a seray, you must know, is generally just a large square enclosed by a high wall with an open colonnade along the inside all around to accommodate both men and beasts, and with, perhaps, a few rooms and towers at the corners for those who are too rich or too proud to care about sleeping by their own camels and horses. Modi, of course, was a country lad and had lived with the cattle all his life, and he wasn't rich and he wasn't proud. So he just borrowed a bed from the innkeeper, set it down beside an old buffalo who reminded him of home, and in five minutes was fast asleep. In the middle of the night he woke, feeling that he had been disturbed, and putting his hand under his pillow found to his horror that his bag of money had been stolen. He jumped up quietly and began to prowl around to see whether anyone seemed to be awake, but though he managed to arouse a few men and beasts by falling over them, he walked in the shadows of the archway round the whole seray without coming across a likely thief. He was just about to give it up when he overheard two men whispering, and one laughed softly, and Modi peered behind a pillar. Then he saw two Afghan horse dealers counting out his bag of money. Forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty silver coins. <laughs> then Modi went back to bed. In the morning, Modi followed the two Afghans outside the city to the horse market in which they were selling their horses. Choosing the best-looking horse amongst them, he went up to it and said, Hey, uh, is this horse for sale? Uh, may, may I try it? Maybe take it for a spin? The merchants, assenting, helped him scramble up onto the back. He dug his heels in and off he flew. Now Modi had never been on a horse in his life and had so much ado to hold on with both hands as well as with both legs that the animal went just where it liked and very soon broke into a breakneck gallop and made straight back to the seray where it had spent the last few nights. <laughs> now, this is a darn good horse, thought Modi to himself as he whirled into the entrance. As soon as the horse had arrived at its stable, it stopped of its own accord, and Imodi immediately rolled off. But he jumped up at once, tied the beast up, and called for some breakfast. Hey, can I get some bacon and eggs here? Presently, the Afghans appeared, out of breath and furious, and claimed the horse. Wait, hey, what are you, what are you talking about? It's my horse. 
I paid you 50 pieces of silver for it. It's a bargain, I do say so. Nonsense. It's our horse, answered one of the Afghans as he began to untie the bridle. Hey, now you'll leave my horse alone. If you don't let my horse be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna crack your skulls. You, you are thieves. I know you. Last night you took my money. So today, I took your horse. That's fair enough. Now the Afghans began to look a little uncomfortable, but Modi seemed so determined to keep the horse that they resolved to appeal to the law. So they went off and laid a complaint before the king that Modi had stolen one of their horses and would not give it up nor pay for it. Presently a soldier came to summon Modi to the king, and when he arrived and made his introduction, the king began to question him as to why he had galloped off with the horse in this fashion. But Modi declared that he had got the animal in exchange for fifty pieces of silver, whilst the horse merchants vowed that the money they had on them was what they had received for the sale of other horses. And in one way and another, that dispute got so confusing that the king, who really thought that Modi had stolen the horse, said at last, Well, I tell you what I will do. I will lock something into this box before me, and if he guesses what it is, the horse is his, and if he doesn't, then it's yours. To this Modi agreed, and the king arose and went out alone by a little door at the back of the court, and presently came back clasping something closely wrapped up in a cloth under his robe. He slipped it into a little box locked the box, and set it up where all might see. Now you, Moti, you guess what it is. It happened that when the king had opened the door behind him, Moti noticed that there was a garden outside. Without waiting for the king's return, he began to think what could be gotten out of the garden small enough to be shut in a box. <laughs> it is likely to be a fruit, no, a flower. No, not a flower this time, for he has, he clasped it too tight. Then it, it must be a fruit or a stone. Yo, no, not a stone, because he wouldn't wrap a dirty stone in his nice clean cloth. Then it is a fruit, and a fruit without much scent, I must say, or, or else he'd be afraid that I might smell it. <laughs> I, I know what it is. The one fruit without much of scent is in season just now. When I know that, I, I shall have guessed this riddle. As has been said before, Modi was a country lad and was accustomed to working with his father's garden. He knew all the common fruits, so he thought he ought to be able to guess right. But so as not to let it seem too easy, he gazed up at the ceiling with a puzzled expression. Then he looked down at the floor with an air of wisdom and his fingers pressed against his forehead. Then he said slowly, with his eyes on the king. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, I think it is something freshly plucked. Yeah, that's it. And it's round. Um, and it's red. Oh, I got it. I'm, it's a pomegranate. Now the king knew nothing about fruits, except that they were good to eat. And, as for seasons, he asked for whatever fruit he wanted whenever he wanted it and saw that he got it. So to him Modi's guess was like a miracle, a clear proof not only of his wisdom but of his innocence, for it was a pomegranate that he had put into the box. 
Of course, when the king marveled and praised Modi's wisdom, everybody else did so too. And whilst the Afghans went off, crestfallen, Modi took the horse and entered the king's service. Very soon after this, Modi, who continued to live in the Surrey, came back one wet and stormy evening to find his precious horse had strayed. Nothing remained of him but a broken halter cord, and no one knew what had become of him. After inquiring of everyone who was likely to know, Modi seized the cord and his big staff and sauntered out to look for him. Away and away he tramped out of the city into the neighboring forest, tracking hoof marks in the mud. Presently it grew late, but still Modi wandered on until suddenly in the gathering darkness he came right upon a tiger who was contentedly eating his horse. You are a dirty little thief. Modi shrieked at the tiger and ran up, just as the tiger in astonishment dropped a bone. Whack! came Modi's staff on his head with such good will that the beast was half stunned and could hardly breathe or see. Then Modi continued to shower upon him blow and abuse until the poor tiger could hardly stand, whereupon his tormentor tied the end of the broken halter around his neck and dragged him back to the seray. Well, tiger, bings I eat my horse, I'm gonna have you. I think that's pretty fair. He tied him up securely by the head and heels, much as he used to tie the horse. Then, the night being far gone, he flung himself beside him and slept soundly. You cannot imagine anything like the fright of the people in the Surrey when they woke up to find a tiger, very battered but still a tiger, securely tethered amongst themselves and their beasts. Men gathered in groups talking and exclaiming and finding fault with the innkeeper for allowing such a dangerous beast into the Surrey, and all the while the innkeeper was just as troubled as the rest, and none dared to go near the place where the tiger stood blinking miserably on everyone and where Modi lay stretched out snoring like thunder. <laughs> At last, news reached the king that Modi had exchanged his horse for a live tiger, and the monarch himself came down, half disbelieving the tale, to see if it were really true. Someone at last awakened Modi with the news that his royal master was coming, and he arose yawning, and was soon delightedly explaining and showing off his new possession. The king, however, did not share his pleasure at all, but called up a soldier to shoot the tiger, much to the relief of all the inmates of the Surrey except Modi. If the king, however, was before convinced that Modi was one of the wisest men, he was now still more convinced that he was the bravest, and he increased his pay a hundredfold, so that our hero thought he was the luckiest of men. A week or two after this incident, the king sent for Modi, who on arrival found his master in despair. A neighboring monarch, he explained, who had many more soldiers than he, had declared war against him, and he was at his wit's end, for he had neither money to buy him off, nor soldier enough to fight him. What was he to do? If that's all you're worried about, don't you worry any more. Give me your men and we'll soon bring these robbers to season. <laughs> you wait and see. The king began to revive at these hopeful words and took Modi off to his stable where he bade him to choose whatever horse he would like. There plenty of fine horses were in the stall, but to the king's astonishment, Modi chose a poor little rat of a pony that he was used to carry grass and water for the rest of the stables. 
But why do you choose this beast? Well, uh, your majesty, you see, um, there are so many chances that I, I may fall off this horse. <laughs> and if I, I choose one of your, your fine big horses, I may fall down a long ways to the ground and I could probably break my leg or my arm or my neck. That would be pretty bad. <laughs> but if I fall off this, this little horse here, I can't hurt myself much at all. <laughs> A very comical sight was Modi when he rode out to the war. The only weapon he carried was his staff, and to help him to keep his balance on horseback, he had tied to each of his ankles a big stone that nearly touched the ground as he sat astride the little pony. The rest of the king's cavalry were not very numerous, but they pranced along in armor on fine horses. Behind them came a great rabble of men on foot, armed with all sorts of weapons. And last of all was the king with his attendants, very nervous and ill at ease. So the army started. They had not very far to go, but Modi's little pony, weighted with a heavy man and two big rocks, soon began to lag behind the cavalry, and would have lagged behind the infantry too, only they were not very anxious to be early in the fight, and hung back so as to give Modi plenty of time. The young man jogged along more and more slowly for some time, until at last... Getting impatient at the slowness of the pony, he gave him such a tremendous thwack with his staff that the pony completely lost his temper and bolted. First one stone became untied and rolled away in a cloud of dust to one side of the road. Wilts Modi nearly rolled off too, but he clasped up the steed valiantly by its rugged mane and dropping his staff held on for dear life. Then... Fortunately, the other rock broke away from his other leg and rolled thunderously down a neighboring ravine. Meanwhile, the advanced cavalry had barely time to draw to one side when Modi came dashing by, yelling bloodthirsty threats to his pony. You wait till I get a hold of you. Oh, I'll skin you alive. I'll wring your neck. I'll break every bone in your body. The cavalry thought that this dreadful language was meant for the enemy and were filled with admiration of his courage. Many of their horses were too quite upset by this whirlwind that galloped howling through their midst, and in a few minutes, after a little plunging and rearing and kicking, the whole troop were following on Modi's heels. Far in advance, Modi continued his wild career. Presently, in his course, he came to a great field of castor oil plants, ten or twelve feet high, big and bushy, but quite green and soft. Hoping to escape from the back of his fiery steed, Modi grasped one in passing, but its roots gave way, and he dashed on, with the whole plant looking like a young tree flourishing in his grip. The enemy were in a battle array, advancing over the plain, their king with them confident and cheerful, when suddenly from the front came a desperate rider at a furious gallop. <sighs> Sire! Save yourself! The enemy are coming! Huh? What do you mean? Oh, sire, fly at once. There's no time to lose. Foremost, the enemy rides a mad giant at a furious gallop. He flourishes a tree for a club and is wild with anger. For he cries, oh, You wait till I get a hold of you. I'll skin you alive. I'll wring your neck. I'll break every bone in your body. The other riders are behind. And you would do well to retire before this whirlwind of destruction comes upon you. 
Just then, out of a cloud of dust in the distance, the king saw Modi approaching at a hard gallop, looking indeed like a giant compared with the little beast he rode, whirling his castor oil plant which in the distance might have been an oak tree, and the sound of his revelings and shoutings came down upon the breeze. Behind him the dust cloud moved to the sound of the thunder of hooves, whilst here and there flashed the glitter of steel. The sight and sound struck terror into the king, and turning his horse, he fled at top speed, thinking that a regiment of yelling giants was upon him, and all his force followed him as fast as they might go. One fat officer alone could not keep up on foot that he might make a mad rush, and as Modi came galloping upon him, he flung himself on the ground in abject fear. This was too much for Modi's excited pony who shielded so suddenly that Modi went flying over his head like a skyrocket and alighted right on top of his fat foe. Quickly, regaining his feet, Modi began to swing his plan around his head and to shout, Hey, where are your men? Come on now, bring them out. I'm going to kill them. My, my regiment. Oh, come on, fellas. A, a whole lot of you. We're going to kill you. Where, where's your king? Oh, bring him to me. Here are all my fine fellows coming up. We'll, we'll put each one of you uh, right alongside the head and we'll hit a tree. We'll, we'll swing it and we're going to club you right in the head. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. And then we're going we're gonna to flatten your houses and your towns and everything else. Come on, boys. But the poor fat officer could do nothing but squat on his knees with his hands together, gasping. At last, when he got his breath, Modi sent him off to bring his king and to tell him that if he was reasonable, his life should be spared. Off the poor man went, and by the time the troops of Modi's side had come up and arranged themselves to look as formidable as possible, he returned with his king. The latter was very humble and apologetic, and promised never to make war any more, to pay a large sum of money, and altogether do whatever his conqueror wished. So the armies on both sides went rejoicing home, and this was really the making of the fortune of clumsy Modi, who lived long and contrived always to be looked up to as a fountain of wisdom, valor, and discretion by all except his relations, who could never understand what he had done to be considered so much wiser than any.